It's just not fair. It's the words that we hear so often in different walks of life. It's just not fair from the toddler who drops her ice cream. It's just not fair to the young boy who complains that his brother goes to bed later than him. It's just not fair. From the teenager who stares in the mirror and compares their appearance to their friends. It's not fair. To the graduate who had to do 60% of their studies online because of COVID. It's just not fair. As the baby wakes for the 10th time and it's not even 3am. It's just not fair. As you hear the colleague who has just been offered that promotion when you think that you should have had it. It's just not fair. And let's take that phrase to our faith in God. When we have looked up at him and we've cried, God, it's just not fair. And it's serious. That's not a joke. When it's my mum or my husband or my wife or my dad or my child who is not a Christian. Why, God? Why don't they trust in you? It just does not seem fair. Over the summer, a young girl died at one of our sports camps. Why, God? 14 years old. It really does not seem fair. If you were here last week, you had homework. If you weren't here last week, maybe you're glad now. But the homework was... Uh, to read chapter 9 of Romans and come up with any question uh, that you may have about God. Perhaps the major question that you came with is something like this. Why does it seem that God is so unfair? Was it something like that in Romans 9? And here's the context that Paul is preaching into, is speaking into. This is the context that Paul writes to. <laughs> He's saying, remember the Jewish converts to us, remember? Uh, there's the Jewish converts and there's the Gentile believers that now form the church in Rome. And he said it's by grace alone, through faith alone. That's how you inherit righteousness from God. And it seems as though there are those who are still saying within the church, yeah, but that's just not fair, Paul. It's not fair. There are questions coming his way that he answers within this text. How come so many of the descendants, that some of the, so many of the descendants of Abraham are not saved and therefore are not blessed, Paul? That's not fair. What you're saying hasn't God's word failed, Paul? Look at verse six. He answers that hidden question. No, it is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Uh, the questions keep coming. Surely God can't blame Israel, can he, Paul? God should be for his people, shouldn't he, Paul? Why doesn't he care? It's just not fair. It's God's plan for salvation. Why aren't the whole of Israel saved? It's just not fair. And so for us, look, if it is God's one true plan through his own true son, the Lord Jesus, why aren't so many more of our friends and family saved? 
Why do we feel like, like those who at times have got it wrong? When we're in the canteen at work and hear the chat and think, oh no, maybe they've got it right. When my atheist friend gives such a great argument and and I look at my God and think, can I be right? Doesn't that chip away at our thinking at times? Perhaps my God-fearing but not God-trusting father at home, perhaps he's right. Maybe the God of the Bible is a bit of a joke. I think that keeps gnawing away at me. In my worst moments, is this God good that I trust, that I read about in the Bible? There are big questions that Paul is now trying to address here in Romans 9. Last week, we said that there are big doctrines at play here in Romans chapter 9. But do you know what's at stake? It's more than a nod or shake of the head. It's more than a oh, kind of, I think I've got that, or no, 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 I'm, I'm not on the same line as, as what's being taught. It, 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 what's at stake is, is more than some agreement over doctrines. What's at stake ultimately is whether we can trust the God of the Bible. That's what's at stake in Romans chapter 9. Can we take the God of the Bible at his word? Everything, everything rides on this and Paul says, Yes, you can trust God in Romans 9. Yes, you can trust God at His word. That's ultimately what Paul is saying in Romans 9. And here's why we're going to look at three points. I'll give you them just roughly so that you know where we're going. Here's why we can trust God at His word. And especially in this context when we're talking about salvation as God is at work in the hearts of people. Here's why you can trust God at his word. Because God is sovereign in his salvation choice. And that's good, says Paul. Here's why. God is merciful and that's needed, says Paul. Here's why. God is good and that's ultimate, says Paul. That's where we're heading with the three points. Let's kick on with that first point. Can I trust God at his word? Can I trust God in saving some and not others? Paul says, yes, God is sovereign in his salvation choice, and that is good. Let's read verses 6 to 13 again. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by the physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Let's hold it there and do verses 10 to 13 later. See what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that history never lies. History is never wrong. History shows me the facts. Has God failed in his plan to bring salvation to his people? Ask the Jews. That's the question on the tip of their tongues. And Paul says, no. No, no, no. no. Don't you see from history that there's always been a chosen people within God's chosen people? There's always been 
a small amount of people that God has worked through and chosen within the large group of people, Israel, that God says are my chosen people. Verse 7, he quotes from Genesis 21 verse 12. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. It's always been like this. It is through Isaac, the promised child, rather, through, rather than through Ishmael, the physical descendant. If you remember back in Genesis 12, if you don't, no problem, just mark it down if you've got a pen and paper and look it up, Genesis 12. The promises to Abraham were vast. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky, says God to Abraham as he takes him outside. But it wasn't happening. There were no descendants that Abraham was having. And so if you remember the story, Abraham took his servant girl Hagar and had a child called Ishmael with her. A physical descendant. And God says, no, Abraham, that's not my plan. Later. At an age that is not conducive to giving birth, Sarah has a child, Isaac. Verse 9, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. And if you've forgotten that history, dear Jew, Paul is saying, look, let me take you to verses 10. To 13, not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Look, dear Jew, Paul is saying, Jewish convert, maybe where you're confused, look. When there are two children that come from the same womb, God chooses one to receive the blessing, to become a child of God, to be his offspring, and not the other. Jacob and not Esau. The younger and not the older. And of course, we the readers are to ask the question, why? Why? Verse 11, I think, is the answer. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. God chooses before they had done any good or bad, so that we can see that us, me and you, being a part of God's plan, does not depend on us. It does not depend on my goodness or my badness. That's what Paul is saying in verse 11. God's election on one and not the other was evident before they were born. See, everything rests on the one whom God calls. Let's drop into real life. Do you know that if you're a Christian today, if you trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, do you know that your salvation does not depend on you being the first to profess or the last to profess? Do you know that your salvation does not depend on whether you have great bank account or not, a degree 
and an education or not, whether you have white skin or black skin. In the context of Esau and Jacob, whether you're good at hunting or good at cooking. Do you know it doesn't depend on that? If it was all about us, it would depend upon us being good. And yet neither the author of Genesis or Paul give us a reason for God's election. The deepest of deep mysteries. Why Jacob, why Esau? A question we cannot answer. Why me, not my friend? A question we cannot answer and not worth asking. Why him, not her? We cannot answer it. And we shudder. Do we shudder? We don't like it when we deal with it as an abstract doctrine of the Bible. We don't like a God who chooses. But think of the alternative. What if it was left to us to choose God? What if God says, oh, here is the way of a righteous standing before me. Now, go for it. Go on. Try hard. Work hard. You see, left to your own devices, left to my own devices, I would not make it. Do you know I'd just be like Esau? I would choose soup above choosing God. Simple. The physical descendants do not choose God. Remember back to Romans 3 as we've journeyed through it. Uh, Paul was pushing this and we pushed it, didn't we, for a long time. All have turned away. There is no one who seeks God. And when we talk about election, we, we cringe. We, we do that. We inhale. We think, really? The thought of God who chooses. But we need a God chooses because if the plan depended on our choice my choice we would never have chosen God you would never have chosen God oh what about the language of hate did you see that in 13 did that make you inhale just as it was written it is written Jacob I loved but Esau I hated it's from Malachi 1 verses 2 to 3 and see the the author Malachi is not Using this to give us a theological statement concluding that God hates. But he's helping us see that God chooses. So Paul recites Malachi to illustrate his point that God chooses one and rejects the other. Not a doctrine of hate and love. It's just the language he used to help us see that God is a choosing God. And we still bite our nails and say that's not fair. Is that fair? A God who controls the destinies of people. Doesn't that compromise our freedom? Where's free will in that? Remember these chapters help us see a God who's sovereign. A sovereign call that lives alongside human responsibility. God must call. And we must respond. That's chapter 10. That's coming. God must call. We must respond. God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And it's held in perfect tension. More on that later. These words in chapter 9 
are to comfort us. It is written for the believer's confidence and comfort. Not you choosing God because you never would. But it's God choosing you. It means that the God of the universe is not sitting back, hoping that we'd make it. He steps down, making sure that we will. Because on my own, I would not. And it's a little bit like school sports day. I mean, on one hand, it's nothing like it. But on one hand, it is. So follow me with this. You watch with anticipation at your child's first school sports day. You're looking to see him or her on the line. You're way more nervous than them, of course. You're anxious. There's a desperate hope. Not that they will win, just that they will make it. Without collapsing face down on the grass and be the laughing stock of the school. Will they make it? Now just imagine if you were allowed to run in. Run into the race. They fell straight flat on their face. And you were able to pick them up and give them a piggyback. Making sure that they make it. You know the outcome. You can make sure that your child crosses the line. Uh, Of course, that's why it's like sports day and why it is not, because you're not allowed at sports day to do that. But that is like God. Left to my own devices, I'll fall straight on my face. I will not make it. What does he do? He comes in and he gives me the piggyback, making sure that I will make it. See what comfort and confidence this is meant to give me? Might not get chosen by people in life, in the school playground to be part of the football team. Might not get chosen for the job promotion. Might not get chosen by the guy that you've liked for a long time. But the Lord of the universe chooses you. the best place to be carried by God trusting in him oh God's sovereign in his salvation choice teaches Paul in Romans 9 and that is good news for me and you second God is merciful and that's needed look at verses 14 to 18 verse 14 what then shall we say is God unjust Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Surely this is, sorry, I've gone off piste. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now my notes, not God's word. Surely this is unfair. He chooses some and not others. I remember being stood in my school and the producers of Fun House, a children's programme, were in school at that time. The most incredible children's programme of all time. And the contestants got to go into, was it Pat Stewart? I think it was, no, what was his name? Pat Sharp, Pat Sharp, thank you. Some out there who know how good Fun House was. And the contestants get to play in the fun house, get to do some challenges and get to 
to try and beat the clock in order to get the prizes back in this wonderful fun house full of foam pits, uh, full of balls, uh, full of wonderful things to try and dive through and to crawl under. Uh, and the contestants, well, I was there amongst 30. I'd got chosen, I don't know why, to the 30, and the producers walked along the line and said, oh, we'll take him. We'll have her. And as they walked past the line, they walked past me. No, no, choose me for Funhouse, please. Needless to say, I didn't get to go on Funhouse. I think you'd have heard that in a sermon illustration long before now if I had. Surely unjust, surely unfair comes my objection. No, it's not unfair, say the producers. We can take who we want. No, it's not unfair, says Paul. It's not on man's desire or effort, but on God. We always think about fairness and unfairness in our human experience. If we're good by our own judgment, then we think we deserve something. If we're hardworking, then we deserve the wage. But remember what we've looked at in Romans already. God is not rewarding us for being good or working hard. God is showing mercy. You know what we deserve. Remember the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's the justice that should be mine, should be yours. And we think that we deserve justice or, or, and we want justice for being good or working hard. But again the Bible says we've been neither. Justice would mean for all of us, the end of Romans chapter 3, disaster. No, 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 it's not justice that we need for being good or for making the grade because we don't. The story goes of Napoleon. You perhaps heard this before. A mother approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son who'd committed two offences. Justice meant execution for her son. Napoleon says, justice must be done. And the mother says, but I don't plead for justice. I plead for mercy. And Napoleon says, but your son does not deserve mercy. Sir, says the mother, it would not be mercy. If he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well then. Said Napoleon. I will have mercy. See if it all hinged on my desire or effort. I do not deserve anything but the judgment of God. My only plea before God is mercy. Don't give us what we deserve, God. Give us your mercy. And Paul talks about Pharaoh. Look at verse 17. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. You and I and the Israelites are not meant to look at Pharaoh and say, oh, He got what he deserved. That's what I often do when I read this. We base our our judgment on whether some people should be in, dependent on how good or how how hard-working they are. And I think Pharaoh deserved that, but, but no, I deserve God's mercy. I'm supposed to look at God and see that he is a God of 
justice against Pharaoh. I'm not better than Pharaoh. You and I are not better than Pharaoh. It's just that God has mercy on me. He has mercy on us. But isn't that unfair? No, says Paul, it's justice. Pharaoh had his heart set against the Lord. His heart was stubborn. And therefore he gets God's justice. And the breathtaking thing is that God saves anyone. The Christian life is founded on mercy. Do you delight in that? I asked God on Wednesday at Peace from Prayer that he would raise my affections towards him because of his mercy. I'm not meant to say, why not them? They get God's justice and that is a good thing from God. I'm meant to say, why me? Because I do not deserve the mercy of God. God is sovereign in his salvation choice. That's good. We've looked at that. God is merciful. That's needed in verses 14 to 18. And here's our third and last point. God is God. And that is ultimate. Here's the million dollar question, isn't it? Why does God still blame us? Do you see that in verse 19? Who will resist his will? What can he have against us? Surely that's not fair, comes the question again and again. But you see, that's from the thinking that our hearts are neutral. We're okay. But our hearts are not neutral. We're not naturally coasting through life happily and being good. We're not coasting in a neutral state. We're caught up in the grip of sin. When I gossip, when I pick up, big up my position, when I get angry with my children, that's not coasting. That's sinful. And God will hold me to account because he's righteous and God. And Paul says, stop. Remember who you are talking to. Look at verse 20. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? And he uses the illustration of pottery. The relationship between the pot, the potter, and the pot. See, the item that is made is fully determined by the potter. That The clay is not self-determining. The little ones at junior church last week, they were the potters. They were a step ahead of us. Talitha made a tree. I asked her if it was a dead tree. She was like, no, of course that's not a dead tree. She put it on the mantelpiece. Treasure. Here's Tommy's effort. As they were asked to make whatever they would want to make, Jordan Pickford's shirt, the England goalkeeper, worked hard to try and find this as it was discarded just close to being underneath the sofa. One is treasured and one we nearly lost, discarded. You see, before we say this is God's fault, it is not fair, remember the pot, the clay, 
cannot speak back to the potter. Can you imagine? No, says Jordan Pickford's T-shirt. I want it to be Aaron Ramsdale's T-shirt. He's the best goalkeeper. It's ludicrous. It's absurd. Do you see what Paul is saying? Can the pot speak back to the potter? No, no, no. Verse 22. What if? God has the right to determine the ultimate destiny of man. The Gentiles flooding in is all dependent on God choosing his people. Oh, it's tough for us to get our heads around chapter 9. So many things we don't understand. Paul readdresses the critical questions of the Jews with the potter image. But what if God is powerful, Paul is saying. He's right to make clay objects. But unlike the potter who would actually merely cast out pots, what does God do? God shows great patience towards that object. And God actually displays his great patience to the rejected object in order to show the riches of his glory upon an object of mercy. The compassionate potter cares deeply. The object of mercy is the church, his people. And the object of wrath is the unresponsive Jew in this context that Paul is speaking to. God's patience was and is extended to provide opportunity to call a new people to himself. Oh, I can't look up at God and say that's not fair. And yet the Bible, we said this just before, it speaks of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. You see, I'm tempted to take one side and play them off against each other. Oh, I say, if I like human responsibility and like it over God's sovereignty, yes, of course I can choose God. And God can't blame me if I don't choose him. But the Bible says, no, no, no. Who are you to speak to God? And yet, if I bank on the side of God's sovereignty, I can say, well, I can do what I want if I'm chosen by God, just live how I want. And the Bible says, no, 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 you'll be held to account. God's sovereignty, not versus human responsibility, God's sovereignty and human responsibility together in tension, in tandem. That is what we see in Romans 10. As Paul says, go. If they do not hear the word of God preached, how will they respond? There's human responsibility in there. And yet we desperately need a God who will step in. Who has to step in. Who picks me up from the grass and gives me a piggyback and takes me to the finish line. Oh, so many questions from Romans 9. We'll get a chance in home groups if you're part of one to... Think again around food and good conversation. And we'll look at Romans 10, the tension of human responsibility. But remember, Romans 9 is written so that you and I may find ultimate comfort. What a place to be in the hands of God chosen by him. And a question you might have had was, well, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm part of God's chosen plan And the human responsibility says, today are you trusting in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of sin? And if you answer yes, with all of your heart, you're chosen. 
by the King of Kings. He's got you. Look at verse 29. Unless, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, unless he did his work, we'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We'd be left in our sin. God is sovereign in his salvation choice. That is good. God is merciful. That is needed. God is God. And you are not. And that is ultimate. Oh, Father, that you would do a work in our hearts as we prayed at the beginning. That we would accept your word. It would comfort us. It would give us great confidence in you. And it would challenge us in our sinful thinking at times. And we pray that our hearts would be filled with thankfulness as a result. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.